<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. Hey, hey Mike. Hey Maddie. What did the right eye say to the left eye? <laughs> what did the right eye say to the left eye? Between you and me, there's something that smells. <laughs> That's, I, uh, <laughs> I'm, t- our friendship has has dropped a little bit in my in my rig. <laughs> just a little bit. Okay, I got one. I got one. I got one. I got one. Okay, so uh, an argon walks into a bar, and the bartender says, "We don't serve noble gases here." But, you know what the argon did? He doesn't react. So. Oh, and you had the audacity to judge my joke. <laughs> oh man, like I, jokes are a great substitute for social interaction during the present apocalypse. It's pretty great. I've forgotten to speak to humans, but I can make jokes still. <laughs> That's all that matters. Hey Maddie, hey Maddie. Hey Mike. Knock knock. Who's there? Two. To who? It's to whom. <laughs> oh man and now i've dropped in your friendship book <laughs> just a little uh okay i have another one why did the phone have to wear glasses <laughs> why did the phone wear glasses because he lost all his contacts <laughs> <laughs> these physically hurt me before we get any worse into the the this present abyss we should probably jump into science <laughs> Like, hey, you know what'll make science more interesting? Terrible jokes. <laughs> By contrast, it'll seem so much better. Well, I tried finding eye jokes because you study retinas. And speaking of which, how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, I just want to flag that I have eye jokes, but for everyone's sake, I'm going to move past them. <laughs> I guess they were too cornea for this. <laughs> uh, all right. I think you've won. You've won. I don't sclera at all. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, so when did I get into eye things? Uh, so I actually applied to neuroscience first at the University of Ottawa. So I didn't apply to work on eyes at all because, you know, eyes don't get the respect they deserve in our undergrads. They don't. Yeah, they don't. Nobody likes eyes. Everyone talks about the brain and how that's the final frontier, and they talk about the eyes as if we've figured it all out. It's a lot of information about perception and stuff and you know they they, when i was taught things about vision i got the impression that it was mostly worked out but there's so much to learn so i I talked to um some people in the neuroscience department i got in there first at u ottawa but before i i really sealed the deal i ended up talking to michael johns in biology and he was just such a, a friendly and interesting person and his project really really interested me Okay, cool. Can I ask why neuroscience initially? Well, for one, I wanted to actually contribute to science. Like, I, I thought that I was most interested in it, so that would probably make me a better scientist in the field. Uh, for two, I, I I get really into the weeds on things, so I thought that studying neuroscience would be good because it's very complex. And there are a lot of systems, and and also I really like cell biology. I wanted to to do something with cells because of courses I did with cell biology, immunology, etc. 
and those things all lined up with Michael Johns's project. So really excited. Also, separately, just a little sidebar. Uh, I used to manage a fish department at a pet store, and I knew a lot about fish. And Michael Johns works with fish, and he really sold the idea that there are some projects you can do in fish that you you can't do in other species. So for example, I work with goldfish. Michael Johns works with goldfish. And goldfish can live without oxygen. So seasonally, in for example, in, in uh, Finland, there are a couple ponds that have been well studied where the ponds will freeze over every winter. And if they're, fro the, well, just the top, sorry, will freeze over. So there's a layer of ice and that prevents gas from getting into the liquid below. So people have thrown thermometers in there, they've thrown some oxygen sensors in there, and they've shown that the oxygen levels get so low, it's, it's basically anoxic. There's no oxygen for months of the year, soon after, after you get to freezing temperatures, and then the fish still live. They live the entire winter without breathing, without oxygen. That's so crazy. It is crazy. Like, can you imagine if you're having a heart attack or a stroke, you have minutes before you start getting cell damage, right? And, and before you can die, like, but for these goldfish, they, they, I, I doubt that they'd experience that, right? If they had the equivalent of a stroke where you don't get blood flow to the, the brain. That's one of my major projects in Michael Johns's lab. I have two major projects uh, and that's the, the one I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up right now. Yeah. You're just finishing your PhD, right? I actually just finished it. Yeah. I'm a doctor now. It might not sound like it with all those bad jokes, but. Oh, congratulations. Making bad jokes is just the mark of a good scientist, you know. So you've done work with goldfish, and you've also done work on the retina, right? Yeah, I usually work on, on goldfish. They're actually historically a really popular model. Goldfish neurons in, in the retina were some of the first neurons that we recorded from in any retina. And you've had a couple projects on this subject, right? So I had two projects in my PhD. So the first project is to study this weird type of electrical activity in the retina. Okay, so bear with me for a bit. I want to set the stage, right? The retina is in the back of the eye. It's a series of neurons that absorb light. They turn it into an electrical signal, and they send that to the brain to, to help with vision, right? So the first cells in the eye that absorb light are photoreceptors. Photoreceptors, like rods and cones, they absorb light, they turn it into an electrical signal, and then they send it downstream to other neurons, right? So those neurons are horizontal cells and bipolar cells. Uh, and then there are other neurons after that, right? Bipolar cells then connect to amacrine cells and ganglion cells, etc. But yeah, so the main takeaway here is that I study horizontal cells. They connect to photoreceptors, they connect to rods and cones, and they help to let us see edges in vision. So every time you look at something, if you're looking at something in the room right now, right, and you see a black line on a screen or something like that, or the edge of, you know, a lamp or whatever, horizontal cells help to make that edge look like an edge. They help to, to sharpen up contrast in our vision. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, without getting too much into the details of how they do that, we know what the horizontal cells do but a lot of the mechanisms of how they work, we don't really know. We know that they have to give feedback to photoreceptors to work, but the mechanisms of that feedback are completely unknown to us. Like that we, or sorry, not completely unknown, but there are three major hypotheses as to how they work. 
and there is some evidence for each of the three hypotheses, some evidence against each of them, and there's a lot of debate about how they function. Okay, so your project was investigating how horizontal cells work. So yeah, in a way, so we found a new type of logical activity in the eye. Yeah, so usually neurons send information in the form of an action potential. So what that means is that normally neurons spend energy to pump uh, ions like sodium, potassium. They pump them their outer membrane, the plasma membrane, and they, they build up a little bit of a charge, right? So, you, you know, you, you pump sodium out of the cell, you pump potassium into the cell, and an action potential is when you, you let those ions move freely for a little bit. Uh, you let sodium come in, and then you let potassium come out. So you let these ions move, and it, it, it's a change in voltage at the membrane. So have you ever seen a heart monitor, Maddie? Like, you know, those, those little blips of a heart monitor? Yeah, I've seen those. Imagine that, but at the cell membrane. So action potentials are, are really fast. They're in the order of milliseconds. And they're usually based on sodium influx. But we found these action potentials in horizontal cells and fish that are based on calcium. So it's, it's different than we'd normally find in a neuron. We don't know why. We don't know what the purpose is for that and, and what the action potentials do. And we also notice that these action potentials are really slow. So they occur in the order of minutes, like seconds to minutes long. Uh, so it's it just crazy to think about that. So most neurons function on the order of milliseconds, but for these neurons, the action potentials are so slow, like what information is carried in the order of minutes, right? Yeah, that's much slower. Yeah. So we, we tried to narrow down which ion channels are involved, like which parts of the cell are involved to let these action potentials happen. We just kind of categorize the pathway of, of how the action potential will start, what ions come through. Uh, so without getting too much into the weeds, we set the foundation so people can come in later on and find out what these action potentials do. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, one fascinating thing about these action potentials is that they get a, a ton of calcium coming in, and that normally would kill a neuron. Like most neurons, if they're turned on for a long time or depolarized for a long time, then calcium starts to build up in, in the cytosol or in, in the in the cell. And it gets to a toxic level. It can mess up mitochondria. It can it can trigger cell death through a number of different means. It can trigger apoptosis and it can trigger proteases to break down parts of the cell. So cells die if they have too much calcium. Except here, these cells have seconds to minutes long action potentials and that increase in calcium doesn't seem to kill them. So if we can find out what they do right, then we can maybe copy that in other neurons. That's so cool. So can you use that information for people having a stroke as well? Yeah, so for example, in a stroke, if you don't have blood flow to part of the brain, then you don't have any oxygen going to that part of the brain. And without oxygen, you can't produce ATP in mitochondria, right? That's the main thing we use oxygen for, is to produce uh, energy or produce ATP. So without as much ATP, then you don't have energy to pump ions across the membrane. So you can't pump sodium and potassium and calcium. And neurons need to regulate those things really finely. So basically without oxygen, calcium spikes, and then the cells die. Uh, except here, right? These cells seem to be okay with high levels of calcium. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so I'm fascinated by them. So that's the first project, is to, to study these action potentials. But something that may be more interesting to someone who's not studying the retina or studying uh, neurons 
could be that we're also trying to find out how cells in the retina can live without oxygen for a while. So our neurons need oxygen all the time, right? And there's this fascinating stat that our brains take up about 2% of our body mass, but they take up about 20% or about a fifth of the amount of oxygen that we breathe in. Okay, that's quite a bit. Yeah. And interestingly, the retina grows embryologically from the brain. It's basically a little pocket of the forebrain that grows out into the eye. So the retina is arguably part of the brain. It has neurons and glia just like the brain, and it shares the characteristics of the brain, including a very high metabolism. So at rest, just like the brain is very active, the retina is very active. Um, so that means it needs blood, it needs, it needs energy, and it needs oxygen. And we had the question, well, how can the neurons in a goldfish, especially neurons in the retina, how can they live without oxygen? So we started by comparing how calcium is handled in low levels of oxygen in goldfish neurons compared to trout neurons. So we know that trout need oxygen all the time, and we know that they're pretty sensitive to low levels of oxygen. Goldfish, though, have long been used as a, a pet in bulls, and they've been kept as pets before electricity, right? Before aerators and filters. So we've got a hypoxia-sensitive species, trout, rainbow trout, and another hypoxia-tolerant species, goldfish. And we wanted to compare how their neurons function in hypoxia. Right. So what have you found so far? So what we found is that the trout cells have an increase in calcium pretty quickly. So what we did is we took horizontal cells, this retinal neuron, right, from trout and then from goldfish. And we put them in a dish and we record levels of calcium using a dye that lets us see what's going on with calcium in the cells. Uh, so it lets us see pretty quickly if there's an increase or a drop in calcium. We can record it in real time. And we can actually observe these action potentials as well. I mentioned those action potentials before, right? So in this hypoxia project, we would take horizontal cells from the retinas of trout and from goldfish. And then we would we'd isolate them, put them in, in dishes so they're separate from other neurons. And we load them with a dye that lets us know what levels of calcium are in the cell. So then we could record calcium in real time. And when calcium gets really high, then we'll see some fluorescence changes that, that tell us that calcium's high. When it gets low, we see fluorescence changes that tell us that it's low. What we found is that in trout, calcium increases uh, irreversibly in hypoxia. Uh, within about 20 minutes, it, it's, it's irreversible. But in goldfish, it, they can last a couple hours and still maintain their, their levels of calcium. And so because it's irreversible, do the cells die from that? Yeah, the cells, we think, die. It's a precursor to death to have such an increase in calcium, right? So when calcium gets really high, it activates these proteins that start to break down parts of the cell. It can also get into mitochondria and trigger apoptosis, which is a type of cell death. Calcium can kill cells in many different ways when it gets to high concentrations. Okay, and this wasn't seen in the goldfish? Yeah, I mean... Even a couple hours of hypoxia don't increase calcium to the same degree. So, so then we tried to ask why, and the short of it is that it looks like there's a mitochondrial pathway that protects them. All right, Maddie, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip this around for one second. What do you know about mitochondria? 
The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> yeah, you passed. That's 100% of the test. It's 10 out of 10. It's great. Yeah, mitochondria produce energy, right? So they, they're the powerhouse of the cell because they, they take in oxygen and they take in uh, metabolites from, from glycolysis, and et cetera, from lipids. And then they can convert that into ATP, which is a sort of energy currency in the cell. But also, if you think of it this way, they're the main consumers of oxygen in the cell, and then they're the main producers of ATP. So they're in a perfect position to sense changes in oxygen and ATP, right? So they're not just there to make energy, they might also be there to sense energy changes. So we had this hypothesis that when oxygen levels dropped, then these ion channels, these little proteins on mitochondria, would sense the change in oxygen and then cause a signaling cascade in the cell that would help to react and protect the cell from all that calcium coming in, right? So what we found is that there's an ion channel in the mitochondria that if, if we block, then the hypoxia tolerance goes away. But there's no effect in normal levels of oxygen. In goldfish, uh, if we apply hypoxia and also block those channels at the same time, we, we block the hypoxia tolerance. We see an increase in calcium and we, we, we think that's a precursor to the cells dying. So, Yeah, that's super interesting. What are some of the future directions for this project then? Future directions? Well, a couple things. I kind of want to know what's happening at the membrane. So we, we've implicated mitochondria in this pathway. We show that mitochondria are able to sense oxygen and trigger a pathway that protects the cell by eliminating the amount of calcium that comes in. But we don't yet know how the calcium comes in in hypoxia. Uh, so I might even do this before we publish the paper, but um, I'd like to find out what ion channels are involved in letting the calcium come in during hypoxia in the first place. Right, so if I block those, those ion channels, then calcium might not come in in hypoxia at all. And that should also take away the risk in, in hypoxia. Yeah, well, I'll test that out. Yeah, it sounds like you could have a lot of fun with that. So I hear you're also a metabolism buff and that one of your projects is on metabolism. Did you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, I think that's one of the coolest papers I, I did. Um, I wrote that alone, actually. I don't know what Michael Johns thinks about it. <laughs> I hope he, He's a nice guy, but I really hope he's cool that I wrote a paper on my own. <laughs> I mean, he sounds like a pretty cool supervisor. Yeah, he's, he's great, but I, I don't know if I'm a cool student. We'll find out. And <laughs> so I, I did this for a course, actually. So I was in Jean-Michel Weber's class. He did an animal energetics class at the University of Ottawa. And uh, part of the, the course was that we had to write a review about energetics. And the review just kept on interesting me so much that I just made it into a published review for brain research. That's so cool. You did that from a class? Yeah, honestly, like... If there's a grad student listening and you have to take a class, it's so easy to turn a project like that into a review. You just got to make sure that it's a topic that no one's no one else has covered before, and then you get a paper out of it. It's pretty good. Would recommend. Plus, you know more about the field, so that's it's going to help in every future thing you write. So it's going to be great. That's a grand idea. Did you get any extra credit for that? I mean, I did get a paper out of it. Okay, yeah, that's fair. I don't know about in the course, but in, in grad school, it's not like you're going for an extra percent. It's really just, you know, 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the paper is the paper was the credit I wanted. So. Yeah. So tell us about that paper. Okay. So, I mentioned earlier that the retina is part of the brain, right? So it's it's made embryologically from the brain. It has the same cells as the brain. It has the same high metabolism as the brain. And also at rest, right? The, the retina is pretty active. The cells in the retina operate differently than most other cells. Photoreceptors are actually on in the dark. Photoreceptors only turn off when light hits them. So they're active even throughout sleep. That sounds so weird to me because you'd think that the body would want to shut it off to conserve energy. Right, so there's a reason that um, the retina is always on in the dark. And the, the benefit there is that it lets a single photon have a huge impact on the voltage of a photoreceptor. So one photon can interact with a pigment, retinal, in photoreceptor cells. And just by changing that one pigment, that can then change the conformation of a, a G protein, this attached protein. And then that G protein then can activate uh, phosphodiesterase. So it's just another, another protein, but that one first protein activates multiples of, this, of the next protein, right? And each, each of that, the next protein, phosphodiesterase, uh, can then hydrolyze multiple uh, cyclic GMP. So basically, step one leads to many of step two, step two leads to many of step three. So ultimately, the, the end product of this cycle closes a whole bunch of ion channels in the, in the photoreceptor. So if that's too technical, it's basically an amplification process where a single photon can have this huge ripple effect in the photoreceptor and change the voltage by a millivolt. And that couldn't happen if you if you had the photon you know, turn on the cell. It's, it's much, much more of an amplification if it turns it off. Oh, okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, it makes the, the retina very sensitive and it's also very fast. So those are the benefits. So the, the retina is active in the dark. And you know the retina is active in the light because of course it is. Because <laughs> that's how you see, right? Yeah, exactly. So while photoreceptors turn off in the light, some other cells in the retina turn on in the light. So that means the retina is always active and it has a high energy demand. And we know that if you cut the blood flow to the retina, then you lose function within seconds. So the, the retina has a high energy demand. And this paper was really about how the retina gets its energy. And the reason this is fascinating, the reason it's not just a trivial thing, because for most parts of the body, how do you get energy? You get blood flow, you're done, right? But for the retina, if you just get blood flow throughout the retina, then you won't be able to see well, because then you'll have blood in the way, right? So the retina, if, if, you, have a, a, if you have a big retina that can absorb a lot of light, presumably that retina will require more energy. And if the retina requires more energy, it needs more blood, and the more blood it gets, then the less the retina can function. So then it won't need as much energy again. It's kind of a catch-22. So this review that I did with was just to, to help to understand this catch-22. So in the retina, there's a downside to having blood flow everywhere. Like in the brain, you'd want blood to be pretty close to the neurons, so then they get enough energy to function. But in the retina, if you do that, then you can occlude the light. You know, blood vessels and blood are opaque. So 
different species have different solutions to this problem. For example, some mammals just kind of give up on it. They put blood vessels everywhere. So mice, for example, they, they do that. They don't have great vision for that reason. Yeah. But mice are nocturnal, right? So they, they, they might not need to have great acuity in their vision, but they might need other features. Like for example, they might have to have good night vision and they might have to have good motion detection, good neural processing. The retina is more than just sensing light. It also processes the image. It can tell you things like the direction of certain things and you know, movement is processed partly in the retina. So even if the signal never gets to the brain, the retina can, can start to process and can tell the direction and the, the movement of many things. It can also process the change in light. That means that those neural processing components of, the, of vision uh, can be fueled even if you don't have a great acuity in your vision. Other species have other adaptations. So for example, in the rabbit or guinea pig retina, they have blood vessels only in the back of the retina, just behind all the photoreceptors. Uh, so they basically have nothing on the other side or inside the retina. They, they have no, no blood vessels in the way. So their retinas are really thin for that reason, right? So they, they, they don't have great acuity either, but they're very good at sensing movement. So they basically, they, they have fewer functions available to them and the retinas probably aren't as good. So birds are fascinating. They don't have any blood vessels inside or on the, the inner side of the retina. So this is something I should probably clarify. So <laughs> blood vessels can be in three places in the retina. So they can be behind the retina and they're out of the way, right? Behind the retina means they're not going to interfere with the light. The light's already absorbed at that point. But if they're inside the retina or in front of the retina, and in front I mean closer to the the lens of your eye, the front of your eye. In those areas, then the, the blood vessels might actually absorb light and uh, occlude the image. So in birds, there are no blood vessels for the most part in the retina or in front of the retina. Um, instead, they have this sort of like fan structure. It's called a pectin. And in, in many cases, it looks like a fan, a, a Japanese fan with these pleats, like a... and all those blood vessels in that Japanese fan structure, or that pectin, sort of protrude into the globe of the eye. So whenever the birds jerk their heads around, they wiggle the pectin back and forth, and that helps to stir the liquid inside the eye. And also sugar and oxygen from inside the pectin can actually perfuse over the retina and get absorbed by those neurons. They don't have blood vessels throughout the retina. Instead, they just put them in this, this pectin so then they can wave back and forth. Oh, is that why they do like a jerking movement with their head to be able to see? Yeah, they kind of jump their head all over the place and then they move their eyes a lot. If you look at a bird, then they can quickly jerk their heads in different directions. And one of the reasons for that might be that they're stirring up the liquids inside their eyes, right? Oh, I never knew that about birds. Yeah, so, so pros and cons to this, this mechanism, right? Like you... I think that a lot of biology can be viewed in the lens of trade-offs. It's good to not have blood vessels in the retina so you have great vision, like the eyes of a hawk, right? We often say uh, eagle eyes, etc. But the downside is that you have to jerk your head around a good amount. Or another downside is that you'll have an extra blind spot. 
So for humans, we have a blind spot where all the blood vessels come into the retina in the back of the eye and where the optic nerve kind of meets the retina, right? So we have one blind spot, but for birds, they have an extra blind spot where the pectin is, where the, these this mound of blood vessels are. And so the pectin is usually a little bit low in the retina. It's kind of close to the bottom of the retina. And that means that the top of their field of view is completely occluded. So one other cool thing about the pectin is that it creates a blind spot. And so that blind spot is uh, in the top of their field of view. So that means that if you're looking head on with your pet parrot, sometimes the parrot will turn its head upside down. There are a lot of memes of this and things like that. Everyone stop, look up memes of parrots, and you'll see parrots flipping their heads upside down. It's really science. It's not a meme. <laughs> yeah, science is, is at least 10% meme. For sure. Yeah, when they do that, what they're trying to do is, is look down at you, right? If, if, if they invert their head, then it, it's like they're looking down at you. Does that make sense? They can't look up at you because there's a huge pectin in the way that gets them the blood flow to the back of the retina. But they can look down at you because they have really, really acute vision. There are no blood vessels in the, the part of their retina that looks down. That's how, for example, a hawk is so good at getting a bird on the ground. But hawks might not be that good at looking up. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't have to a lot. Yeah. Then other animals do different things. So, for example, in fish... All right, Maddie, have you ever heard of a swim bladder? Yes, I have. So it's like a little balloon inside the animal, kind of. So there's some growing evidence that the mechanism that inflates the swim bladder actually evolved first in the eye. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it's a fascinating thing where fish have a different type of hemoglobin. Uh, so that's the protein that carries oxygen and delivers it to tissues throughout the blood, right? So it makes your blood red. But in fish, there's this fascinating thing that as the blood gets more acidic, then the oxygen is released a lot faster. Hemoglobin can't take oxygen or keep oxygen as much when the blood is acidic. So the hemoglobin then offloads oxygen in places where there's more acidity and so what happens in the retina is there's in fish there's this extra organ called a choroid reet. So a reet system is when you get blood vessels that are are entangled in such a way where you get venous capillaries, like veins, little capillaries from veins, really really close to capillaries from arteries. And the venous capillaries are acidic, right? They're carrying blood that doesn't have any oxygen anymore. They're coming away from the tissue. And because they're acidic, you know, they, they, they have a lot of protons in there, a lot of acid, that can leach out into the nearby arterial capillaries and make that new fresh blood really acidic. And that offloads a ton of, of oxygen from the hemoglobin, right? So basically, the, the blood flow is sort of short-circuited. So the the acid from the venous blood coming from the retina meets the, the fresh blood coming into the retina and that increases the amount of oxygen in the eye a crazy amount. So if you measure the amount of oxygen inside most tissues, it's it's pretty low, right? Like the, the 
the way it kind of works is when you're, we're breathing, the oxygen in our air is about 21% of, of the partial pressure of the air. And then as it gets into our lungs, then we take some of that oxygen out, and then the partial pressure of oxygen in our lungs is a little bit less. And as we get to our tissues, we've consumed some of that oxygen, so the partial pressure keeps on going down and down and down until you get to the tissue, right? So it's higher in the atmosphere than it is in the tissue. But in the eye of fish, with this crazy mechanism to offload oxygen, it actually increases. There's more oxygen in a fish's eye than there is in the atmosphere, depending on the fish. And some fish do this so effectively that their eyes literally bulge out of their, their sockets. And th they have more pressure just of oxygen than there is atmospheric pressure. Okay. Just to, to drive that point home, so 20% of the, the amount of gas floating around in our air is, is oxygen. Imagine about 10 times that amount of oxygen in the eye of, for example, a trout. Right. That's, it's crazy to me. And there are so many questions about that. Like, if you have that much oxygen near a tissue, wouldn't you expect oxidative damage? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, we've all heard of antioxidants because we want to prevent oxygen from damaging our tissues. And we know that oxygen is, is part of aging Oxygen causes problems, right? And if you have so much of it there, it must be there must be some mechanisms that these fish have evolved so they don't damage their eyes. Maybe we can learn from them and learn how oxidative damage doesn't mess up the retina in these species. And how does this connect to the swim bladder that we were talking about earlier? Well, the swim bladder sort of inflates through a similar mechanism. So this funky hemoglobin in fish, basically the blood flow to the swim bladder is organized in such a way that acids produced during typical metabolism are used to bind onto the hemoglobin and release oxygen more than you'd normally get. And then you, you just get inflation of the swim bladder based on oxygen. But I don't know too much about how the swim bladder works, to be honest with you. It's kind of out of my field. So. Yeah, okay. I think that's fascinating, right? It's, just, there's, it's so cool. So this paper goes through how blood flow gets to the eye of these different animals. And they also review where energy is consumed in different parts of the, the retina. Do you have any questions about energy in the eye or anything to do with retinas, how retinas work? Yeah, if anyone has any questions about this, definitely go to Mike, he's the expert. Um, you're gonna think I'm silly, but I thought the retina was like the front part of the eye, like kind of a, a cover and not in the back of the eye. No, no, it's it's cool. You should really like it. it I like that you're asking these questions that are really basic because a lot of people listening are going to be like that. I would like, I like to ask the dumbest questions when I'm in seminars just because everyone has them. Just <laughs> people are always worried about asking them. Yeah, I definitely get worried about asking something dumb during class. Nah, I think science is about being dumb in a direction. Oh, I really like that. Yeah, as, as long as you record things and, like, here's the thing. I think we often think about learning as getting new facts, right? Making connections. But but there's more to it than that. You have also have to unlearn. We, we probably have a lot of preconceptions in our brains that we need to be dispelled of. Some people who are really smart 
sometimes declaratively like they encode something in their brain and then they stick with it and sometimes it's wrong for them to stick with it right so we need dumb people in there too <laughs> so they can they can ask those basic questions and if smart people can't answer them maybe it's because they 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 falsely kept it a notion that they should have gotten rid of right a long time ago oh man that's a really good point i mean we could we could do a whole ted talk just on that subject alone how to be dumb <laughs> i you know what maybe i'm suited for that i am suited for that ted talk thank you very much <laughs> yeah you have to be dumb in a smart way but i think it's a useful skill to to ask the basic questions and not assume anything like i read at one point einstein's relativity fascinating book and in the book he opens up with these basic assertions where you're like why are you saying this like he literally states things like one meter is always one meter and one gram is always one gram. And you're like, what, what, why are you like, we learned these things when we were like three or four, that things are constant. Object constancy, really? That's what you're gonna start with? But he actually did have to get rid of those ideas for relativity. And he found that there are things like time dilation and mass dilation as part of relativity. And it's partly, I think, because he asked these questions that are so basic and, and everyone just assumed were not worth asking. So that was central to how I learned to do science is that no question is too dumb as long as you ask it in a smart way. Yeah, I I definitely think that students get discouraged sometimes. I know I do where I think I'm I'm not smart enough to be in this master's program. But that's a nice reminder that really there's no stupid questions. All right, so one of my last questions for you is what are your future plans with these projects? So the retina is a fascinating model and I want to keep working with it. I think that if we keep studying the retina, we can better understand the brain because the retina is just a really easy to access part of the brain, right? There's no skull that protects the retina. You just cut the optic nerve and you're, you're done. You have the retina separate and you can shine light in. So the retina is a collection of neurons you can stimulate with its true stimulus with light. You're not, hooking up some amplifiers and injecting some artificial stimulus that that may never be the true stimulus that those neurons receive right it's not artificial so i think that it offers a lot of benefits to studying neurons so all that to say i want to keep working with the retina and uh, i was awarded a jsps fellowship so it stands for the japanese society for the promotion of science fellowship and it's been quite a long time that COVID has prevented me from getting in there, but I'm really excited about this project. Uh, I'll be working with Dr. Genshiro Sunagawa, and he works on hibernation. So we don't really know how animals hibernate, like what, what triggers hibernation exactly. <laughs> That's another basic thing I feel like we should know by now. There is so much stuff that we don't know about basic, basic biology. If we magically did have a high school student listening or some undergrad listening who's like, we figured it all out, we're just moving on to, to to the specifics, right? Like, if someone thinks we've figured all the, the big puzzle pieces, now we're just working on, on tiny details. It's not even kind of like that. We don't even know why we sleep yet. Maddie, do you know why we sleep? Um, Because we get tired. But why do we get tired? Like, the, you'd imagine that we could have been engineered, so we don't need to get tired. 
It's because we're always researching, and that's why we got tired. Touche, <laughs> uh, touche. So we, we understand a bit of how animals hibernate, but we don't know the neural networks involved, and we don't know if the, the onset of hibernation is mostly neural or whether there's a, a blood-borne component. Uh, we can't trigger hibernation. If we really understood how animals hibernate, we could probably trigger it in them, right? And also, hibernation is a, a kind of strange thing because if you look at the animals that hibernate, right, among mammals, there are about eight or nine groups of, of animals or of mammals that that hibernate that are not related to each other. So imagine these animals. There's, there are bears and squirrels. Are they related to each other? <laughs> and then bats go into torpor depending on the bat, but they're also not, they're not related to bears directly. Then there are primates. So same group as humans, right? That could be useful for medicine. These are all very different animals. Uh, just to wrap that up, that suggests that there's a common ancestor to these mammals that was able to hibernate and maybe just the switch or the trigger that turns on hibernation has changed in these animals. Uh, so if we could find out what that switch is, then maybe we could trigger hibernation. And that has medical implications because if we could put someone into hibernation at will, it might be useful for space travel. It might be useful for if someone has a heart attack or a stroke, we could buy them more time before they have to get to the hospital or get help. Uh, we might reduce the damage in those conditions. So medically useful. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I would personally love that to get a little more sleep. Anywho, uh, I have a question. Is torpor the same as hibernation? Oh, right. Thank you for asking. You know, depending on who you ask, there's a different answer about that. So usually the way it's used now, hibernation is for, for really slow versions of torpor. Torpor is just the faster version. So we often talk about torpor for animals that go into a, a, a low metabolism state every day or the order of, um, you know, hours or something like that. So for example, uh, some bats do this where daily they'll go into a state where they, they don't really keep their, their temperature high. They kind of just drop their body temperature and they don't spend as much energy. Mice can actually go into torpor if you don't feed them for a bit. So you just take away their food for a day and then they, they enter torpor. But other animals enter torpor for a long period of time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, because as a kid, you learn all about hibernation, but it's interesting we don't actually know the mechanisms of it. So can humans also go into hibernation? They might. There's a case study in which someone had a hypothalamic issue. So the hypothalamus is part of the brain. It is involved in a whole bunch of autonomic responses like uh, thirst and temperature control and it's also responsible for sleep for appetite for body temperature etc so the hypothalamus also probably plays a role in hibernation and someone presented with a hypothalamic issue where they just randomly drop their body temperature once in a while and doctors recorded this in real time they'd be talking to someone and their body temperature would start to drop and then it would come back up on its own so that that could arguably be a case of hibernation. If you think of it, hibernation is not just sleep. It's actually where we change our body temperature. We basically become less warm-blooded for a period of time. 
so, so you think of like a reptile they don't necessarily like they don't heat themselves up they don't keep a constant internal body temperature they they thermoregulate by using their environment so they'll go into the sun for a bit for example to heat up and we do thermoregulate and the the center of the brain that does that is the hypothalamus and during hibernation or torpor we thermoregulate very differently we actually just don't keep the same let's say 37 degrees celsius temperature we'll just let our body temperatures drop to a very low level and this is to help conserve energy yeah exactly it takes a lot of energy to heat us up and to keep us at the the same temperature all the time so hibernation saves a whole bunch of energy that's awesome that sounds like it's going to be a really interesting project i'm so pumped so we'll be looking at the retina and i can't really get into too many of the details but it'll be a little bit about how the retina intersects with hibernation and i'm fascinated about it it's really really cool hey maddie do you want another science joke yeah okay all right okay all right so the past the present and the future they all walk into a bar at the same time it was it was tense (laughs) oh my goodness okay can you share at least just one eye joke please (laughs) what do you call a fish with no eyes um i i don't know i don't remember (laughs) (laughs) that was a good one i love that you didn't remember that even though we said it in another tanked recording because you've tried to protect yourself by not remembering these terrible jokes (laughs) yes my brain was trying to protect me i guess there's this one thing that that i wanted to say that Maddie, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who can extrapolate from incomplete data. That's the joke. (laughs) And we should just end the podcast right there. (laughs) Hey, everyone. You can listen to more of Mike's research and future plans by following him on Twitter at Biology Country. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next month.